Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am uh, fighting uh, the flu, I think, so do pray for me uh, as we uh, look at this passage. We're in the middle of a series out of the book of 1 Corinthians. And for the first few chapters here, we've been seeing Paul's main concern uh, being that there is division and disunity in the church in Corinth. Uh, and the church is is not very well equipped to deal with matters of, of contention and... Um, disunity, uh, and, and, and in regards to the things this morning, even matters where, you know, and typically you might have to eventually involve the courts uh, to rectify them. So see, part of the problem is, is that people who call themselves Christians, you know, if there's marital trouble, they immediately think, I got to go find a, mar- you know, a marriage counselor. Or if there's financial trouble that they find themselves in, they think, I got to call Dave Ramsey. Or if there's some kind of, you know, um, lawsuit situation, they think, I've got to go find a lawyer and hire a lawyer. People, typically, our, our impulse is not to go to the church and ask the church to help mediate these kinds of things. Now, the part of that is because the church has not proven itself to be very equipped to do that, and yet what Paul is talking about in this passage is that there's a certain expectation. See, the problem, again, is all this division and disunity, this drawing of lines, these parties being set up in Corinth, and Paul speaking right into that situation, and he's saying that the church, by definition, by what it is, by what, by what, what the church is and how God is moving us towards the destiny that is ours that will one day be ours as we sit with him in heaven, by what we already are, that the church, contrary to our experience, should be a place where we can do conflict resolution well. Okay, so I want you to see four things uh, from this passage this morning. In regards to these things, let me look, before I do that. Let me say let me, I want to clear up any misunderstanding. Okay, I am the son of a lawyer, lawyer now the son of a judge, and so Paul's not saying that lawyers and judges are evil. Okay, and that it's wrong to go to for a Christian to go to court. He's concerned about unity in the church. The church leaders are outsourcing their conflict resolution. That's the problem. Okay, and that's what we want to deal with. Let's look at four things from this text first. I want you to see the expectation of conflict and conflict resolution in the church, okay? So there's an expectation 
of conflict and conflict resolution in the church. Secondly, uh, Paul begins to give a theological reason for this. Thirdly, he gives us a practical reason for it. And then fourthly, he shows us the power for conflict resolution. So there's an expectation of both conflict and the work of conflict resolution. There's a theological reason for this. There's a practical reason for it. And then Paul ends the chapter with the power that is ours through the gospel to do conflict resolution well. So let's look at this passage, okay? This should be good. If you're here and you're not a Christian, a lot of what Paul's writing about here is what the church is, how we understand how the church works, and so that's part of what he's doing for us here. Let's start, okay? First, Paul assumes conflict and conflict resolution in the church. Okay, look there at verse 1. He does not say there shouldn't be grievances. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another. In other words, it is the nature of sin to create alienation. So conflict and conflict resolution are just part of life in a broken world, and it is unwise to think otherwise because it's out of touch with reality. If you were here for our Proverbs series, remember? What's wisdom? Wisdom is being in touch with reality. It is out of touch with reality to think that conflict is somehow abnormal. Okay, so the first thing this passage does, and how I want to phrase, how I want to phrase it, and how I want to set it up for us to talk, is it really helps us distinguish between what I'm going to call pseudo community and then true community. Okay, pseudo community and true community. Now, in M. Scott Peck, who's an American psychologist and author, is the one who is credited with making this distinction, and he says that what most people call community is actually pseudo-community, which is defined by the absence of conflict. And so the problem is that in a sinful, broken world, when two sinful, broken people get together in a relationship, it's utterly impossible for that relationship to be conflict-free. Okay? That's two people. What about 20 sinful, broken, self-centered people? Or 200? Right? And yet we still live with this idea that life should be a Norman Rockwell painting. We do. M. Scott Peck says that's impossible. A conflict-free environment is always, here's how he puts it, he says it's always purchased by pretense and deceit. It's a lie, in other words. Conflict-free community is a lie. It's out of touch with reality. So what happens is sinful, broken people If they spend enough time together, eventually, they hurt one another's feelings. And in the thousands of moments when this sort of thing happens, instead of being honest with one another, okay, instead of in these moments being honest with with each other, for the sake of avoiding conflict, we stuff our feelings down, we pretend we're not upset, or we think we live with this idea that we shouldn't be upset, so we delegitimize our feelings in whatever way, faced with Faced with this choice, conflict or dishonesty, we choose dishonesty. And the result is pseudo-community, not real community. Because I'm not free to feel, excuse me, how I really feel and to say what I really want to say. I've got to put on a pretense, right? And we've become so accustomed to doing this. It's such a way of life for us that we don't even know we're doing it. Now, let me just review a little bit of what I said last week and how it relates to this, okay? Um, (coughs) 
<clears throat> excuse me, the whole idea of truth and love and what we talked about last week. The problem with pseudo-community is there's no real intimacy. Uh, because there can't be an intimacy without honesty. Remember, love without truth isn't love. Dishonesty, this pretense, this choosing to be dishonest for the sake of not ruffling anybody's feathers, right? I'll, I'll choose to lie rather than deal with the conflict. What happens is, is it eventually creates emotional and relational dif- distance, pseudo-community. So the best example from my own life that I can tell you is, is um, you, it, everybody knows uh, marrying, you know, marrying into a family is just very, very difficult. So the, in-law whole, the whole in-law thing can be tough, right? Anybody with me on that? Anybody else experience this? No? Okay, I'm alone. And so it has been for me um, because I'm just a very opinionated person and kind of loud and, and all that. And Ashley's family, I just don't think, was ready for that. Because the men in her family are very quiet and subdued. And so they've just not known what to do with me from the beginning. And what's happened is we were together at um, Christmas or somewhere, and her brother came to me and said, you know, I don't really like, I don't really like the Bradenton Drew. And he said, well, Bradenton, she, they're from Bradenton. And what he meant was, is what I had learned over the years, because I had chosen to be dishonest for the sake of just peace, what happens is you shut down. It's not the real me anymore, Right? He said, I don't even know where you go. But, but, but who you are is not the real you. And so this is what I mean by this. No real intimacy because there can't be intimacy without honesty. And sometimes in these relationships, we learn to just live dishonestly towards one another. And the tragic result is that there's no real intimacy, okay? Because love without truth is not love, okay? But the problem is, is when there is then an attempt, in this whole idea of pseudo-community, when there is an attempt at honesty it will be dysfunctional. It'll be, remember what I said, truth from a distance? This, this passive-aggressive truth, truth without relationship, which isn't truth because without the relationship, it's tainted by self-will, okay? And so the best example I know uh, to give you um, from, from my own experience is this is every now and again, I'll, um, I'll, get, I'll get a note, you know, somebody will turn in a note or something telling me, you know, that the sermon was too long or that, you know, I seemed unprepared or whatever it might be, giving me some kind of suggestion about how things could be done better. And I, I mean, honestly, honestly, I'm grateful for the feedback. It is a great opportunity to learn, but because it's from a distance, you see what I'm saying? Because it's, it's from a distance, there's no relationship, it's hard, it's hard uh, for it to really have the, the impact that it could possibly have. The good, it, it, in other words, the distance, the distance um, cuts off the, the truth from the actual good work the truth could do in the, in, the, in the life of the person you're talking to. And so pseudo-community is a sense of relational distance, truth from a distance, or just complete dishonesty for the sake of conflict-free environments or whatever it might be. That's pseudo-community. Either conflict avoidance, you know, Love but no truth, or just a, a sick love of conflict where there's truth but no love. But t- true community is defined by conflict resolution. By a group of people who are brutally honest but never from a distance, never anonymously, because they're relationally committed to one another and they want their honesty to help the other person and to enhance the relationship. And that's what this passage is about. Paul says 
that part of the church's ministry is to judge. He uses this word judge over and over again. I want to go back. If you have a Bible open, you'll see back in chapter 5, which is the verses just before the one that Susan read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. And including those two verses, this word judge occurs six times in the passage. And we have such an allergic reaction to that word, right? Don't go into anaphylactic shock. Okay? Because you say judge and people get, you know, scared and, and uptight. And the reason I think we respond that way is because when we hear judging, we think self-righteous, smug, mean-spirited, angry people looking down their noses at you. And that's not at all what Paul is referring to here when he gives the church the task of judging. That's truth with no love. Paul means, you ready? Wise, gentle, patient, kind, gracious, truth-telling, and conflict resolution. The idea of judging doesn't mean running around telling everybody what they're doing wrong. It means the church, through its leaders, should possess the wisdom and grace to mediate conflict in a meaningful way in people's lives. So we see there, there is the expectation all throughout this letter, but particularly here in these first few verses, of conflict and conflict resolution. Because it, community with no conflict is not true community. It's pseudo-community, okay? And so part of the work the church has to do is to do conflict resolution. Now, why? There's a theological reason and a practical reason why Paul says this is true, okay? So my second point there is just this idea of this, this theological reason, okay? Let's look at that first. The church is to judge and mediate conflict because of what we will one day be. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? That's crazy. Right? And if, you don't, if, if, and if, it, and if it doesn't land on you that way, it's because you don't understand what he's saying yet. So hang in there and let me try to explain it. Okay, Paul is saying that when we judge, when we do conflict uh, resolution, and, and when we mediate conflict, it is a dress rehearsal for our ultimate place in the universe. That God has destined his saints. And if you're here, and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would call yourself a Christian, you're a saint, and God has destined his saints to rule over the universe alongside of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in Daniel 7.22, Matthew 19.28, Luke 22.28. Paul, is, Paul is, is taking those passages of Scripture. He's making an argument from greater to lesser here. He said, if that is what we will one day be, if at the end of the age we will be entrusted with the task of ruling and judging with Christ, should we not now also be able to mediate what, what he calls trivial matters? If, if we will judge the angels, right, the first and highest of the created beings, shouldn't we also be able to figure out conflict resolution with one another? Now, Paul doesn't mean that a divorce or a lawsuit is, is, not, is, you know, is a trivial matter. 
he means that compared to the ultimate significance of ruling over the universe and judging the angels, it is. And that's Paul's point. So a couple of applications. I want you to pay attention to the phrase, do you not know? It happens six times <coughs> Excuse me, in chapter 6. Do you not know? It's Paul's way of saying to the church, you've become short-sighted. You've lost the vision of how things really are and will be. And so let me apply that to a couple of areas, okay? First, are you short-sighted or do you live with an adequate vision of the kind of person God intends to turn you into in, in Christ Jesus? Are you short-sighted Or do you live with an adequate vision of the kind of person God intends to turn you into in Christ Jesus? If you know my family, you know that uh, the running joke is that Ashley and I separately are terrible decision makers. Anybody know that about us? I I have the paralysis of analysis, as they say. Right? You put Ashley and I together and tell us to make a decision... And it is an absolute train wreck. It really is. But what Paul is saying here is that despite our weakness and indecisiveness, what has to do with people pleasing and all kinds of other sinful desires and idolatries that we are, you know, that we're working on, that God is intent on turning us into the kind of people that He can task with judging the angels at the end of the age. That's amazing. And Paul says, don't settle for less than that. Don't let the vision for your life and for your kids be anything less than that. That the children that you are raising at the end of the age, when Jesus Christ comes back, you are raising children that will sit on the throne of the universe and judge alongside of Christ Jesus. That is what we're headed towards. But secondly, are you short-sighted? Or do you live with an adequate vision of what the church is? Because you see, for Paul, the church is the place on earth where the rule of heaven is mediated. Let me say that again. The church, for Paul, is the place on earth where the rule of heaven is mediated. Not the law courts. Not Grady Judd's office. Although Grady Judge doesn't know that, I don't think. All right. Not the Capitol building in Tallahassee or the governor's mansion or even the White House. Paul says that all of those civic and government institutions have, verse 4, they have no standing. They are nothing in comparison to the church. That's what Paul means. And that's the thing that's most, perhaps most striking to me about this passage. If the church is the place on earth where the rule of heaven is expressed and mediated, then do you treat the church with that kind of reverence and respect? I have to confess to you that I don't, and I'm a pastor. So don't let your attitude towards the church be anything less than what it deserves. See, this is the theological reason. We are to be people who excel in the work of conflict resolution because one day we will be put on thrones and we will judge even the angels at the end of the age. That's his theological reason for why we should see conflict resolution as part of our work. It has to do with what we will one day be. But there's also a practical reason, and this is from verses 4 through 7. And, and this has to do with what we already are. So Paul says in verses uh, 6 and 7, Brother goes to the law against brother, <clears throat> and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you, Paul says. So the language there 
It's really important. Brother against brother before unbelievers. This is Paul's concern, okay? And what Paul's trying to help us see here is this, that the church is the new humanity, is the redeemed human community embodying in its life together the power of the kingdom of heaven. The church is a community shaped by the truth and power of the gospel, so much so that the way we do conflict resolution should stand in stark contrast with the way the world does. So American society is becoming increasingly litigious, and that is a part of the brokenness in human community caused by sin. It's a sign of how truly alienated we are from one another, right? Long gone are the days when a handshake was sufficient to close a business deal, and it's a sad reality. But what we're told is that in Christ Jesus, God has begun the work of reversing the effects of sin, and in the church, he has put this new thing he's doing on display for the world to see. And that's why Paul says, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. I mean, his concern is the witness of the church, that the church is what Leslie Newbigin called the hermeneutic of the gospel. In other words, it's the only way for our city, the church is, the church is the only way for our city to experience firsthand the power of the gospel and is to see it in the church. And, and so this is what's being lost and how the Christians in Corinth are trying to resolve their conflict by taking it outside the church to the courts. Remember, that's not an evil thing. The problem is, is inside the church. And so as the new humanity... The church points the world to the gospel reality that that defines the kingdom of God that has invaded the world in Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 12, your call to worship, is such a powerful scripture. And I hope hope it, it felt that way as we were reading it this morning, right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Repay no one evil for evil. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. All those commands are in stark contrast to the normal way of doing life. And that's the point. N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican priest and writer, he said, In the eyes of the world, a public dispute between Christians is a sign that Christians are really no different from everybody else. But 1 Corinthians is all about the fact that Christians are different from everybody else. And if they're not, they might as well not bother calling themselves Christians in the first place. So what N.T. Wright and what Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 are trying to teach us is that the love Christians have for one another in Christ, right, by the power of the Spirit of God, the grace we show towards one another, the forgiveness we offer one another, the, the way we handle conflict is God's answer to the brokenness of our sinful world. Our love for one another, our unity, and unflinching commitment to one another is an important part of our witness to the power and the truth of the gospel because the gospel is the good news that in Christ Jesus, God is remaking the world undoing the fall, and dismantling evil. And the way, the scripture says, the way the unbelieving world knows the gospel is true is to have a front row seat to gospel power in the church that produces love. Not indifference, not hate, peace. Not strife or envy or division, patience. Not impatience and anger, right? Kindness. Not mean spirit, right? Mean spiritedness. Do I, I mean, do I need to go on? And if we lose that, if the world looks at the church and sees the same relational dysfunction that is a part of its own experience, then we lose our witness. And so Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says it perfectly. Father, I ask that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you and me, 
that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So how does the world come to know the love of God? By seeing it on display in the way Christians love one another. So love doesn't mean no conflict. It, it does mean a radically alternative, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered methodology of conflict resolution that is only possible by the power of the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul finishes this passage. Okay? With a brief glimpse of just a piece of what that would look like. And so I want to finish with talking about gospel power. Okay? So if the gospel is really the power to accomplish this, then how does Paul... How does Paul leave us with that? Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? (laughs) To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, two things there that I want you to see. He exposes for us the real problem. And he points us to the real solution. And this is what distinguishes the way Christians do conflict resolution. That only the gospel addresses the real problem and only the gospel offers a real solution. So let's finish with the gospel application right here, okay? The real problem, okay? Paul says the real problem, the real cause of conflict, what's behind all of it, conflict that escalates to needing a court's decision to resolve it, what's behind it, what the real problem is, is our desire to win. It's our need to be right. Remember boasting from last week? It's our pride, two weeks ago, I mean, our pride in competition with everybody else's pride. In other words, it's not good enough to be good. I have to be better than everybody else. I have to win. And that's what happens when the gospel is not at the center of your life. And we talked about that in detail. Uh, So I'm just going to move on. And Paul says, so the, the solution then is simple. If the problem is our need to win, there's something in us, that our pride's in competition with everybody else, and so that we just live with the sense of we got to win, then Paul's solution is simple, and it's just this. Why not lose? You don't have to win. You don't have to be right. You don't have to need the other person to know you're right. <laughs> Why not lose? <coughs> so gospel power in a, in, a, in a Christian's life looks like this, Okay. When faced with a choice between conflict for the sake of winning or quietly losing, the Christian chooses to lose. Chooses to die. A Christian is a person who's free enough to lose. Now, I have a great illustration, I think. I remember the first time the implications of this verse, in verse 7 and 8, really sink in for me. and became a rally in my life. It was about the time my daughter Abby was born. Her bedroom, (coughs) oh, that's bad, sorry. Man, I'm almost there. Her bedroom is on the other side of the house from our bedroom. And there are about seven feet from her window, uh, the window in her room, to my neighbor's property. When she was just still a few months old, my neighbor, who's who's a dear man, but we're a little redneck in my my, um, neighborhood, he bought two new hunting dogs. And the kennel for these new hunting dogs just happened to be on the fence line, seven feet away from Abby's window. These dogs barked nonstop. All night long, all day long, all the time. They would wake Abby up, barking. It was terrible. 
I haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Okay. Because, because Abby's room was all the way across the house, of course, we had a baby monitor in our bedroom in order to hear her. Right? And we had to keep it turned up pretty loud. So for months, not only did we have a baby waking us up in the middle of the night, we also had the pleasure of listening to the soothing sound of dogs barking all night long over the baby monitor. All right? Woo! Woo! Now, before you accuse me of being whiny, okay, it was so bad, it was so bad that the neighbors across the street, okay, across the street, not seven feet away, they threatened to call the police. Uh, And literally, I mean, they were like, it was it was it was bad in my neighborhood for a while because of these dogs. I had to break up a fight in the middle of the, in the middle of the road. It was it was tough. Everybody in my life tell me you should call the police, and it really was it was this all consuming thing for me because I I like sleep and I was being woken up and it was terrible and I just couldn't I was really really angry and it was hard. And I remember sitting down one night in all of my angst to read the scriptures, listening to the dogs barking over the baby monitor, fuming. We were reading in 1 Corinthians and CBR, and I got to this verse, and I read, Why not rather suffer wrong? And I did one of these things. Oh, God. Right? Because I knew what it meant. It meant I had to die. It meant I had to lose. It was this moment of sheer clarity when I came face to face with the demands of the gospel on my life. And I, I took my journal out. I, I, it took me a long time to find it this week, but I wrote in my journal all those years ago as I was, you know, reflecting on the dogs that I hated so much. <clears throat> Paul envisions a community who would rather endure wrongdoing, injury, offense and injustice than live in conflict with one another, suing one another. A people content to be cheated and to show love and patience in return, not demanding justice, but being thoughtless of their own needs, offering forgiveness and seeking unity and reconciliation above personal rights and privileges. Now, the story has a good ending. My neighbor called the police, and he had to get rid of the dogs. Praise God. Right? (laughs) But I just, but it was, it was this real profound moment for me. And so I, I just want to ask, in closing, how do you do that? How do you, how do you become that kind of person who can, who can lose? Why not lose? Why not be defrauded? Why not be mistreated? The answer, of course, is only the power of the gospel can do that. And the gospel is this. That God had every right to sue us over our sins. In fact, as justice demanded it, he had an open and shut case against us. And yet, instead of demanding retribution, he chose instead to suffer wrong. On the cross, the Lord Jesus was cheated. Right? The, the cross is literally the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. So let me say it another way. The only way for us to win was for Jesus to lose. And out of love for us, he lost. He died a death he did not deserve to die so that you and I could have life, eternal life, which we do not deserve to live. Now, So do you see Jesus losing so that you might win? 
See, with the eyes of faith, do you see him taking no thought for himself, but absorbed in your need, your misery, your helplessness, choosing to love you and suffer wrong so that you might go free? B.B. Warfield, Princeton theologian, wrote, wrote and said it this way, Christ did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was led by his love for us into the world to forget himself in our needs, to sacrifice self upon the altar of compassion. So you see, the application for our mission is just this. There's only one way, only one way for the gospel to go forward. Apply it however you want, whether it's in your marriage, with your kids, and in our city, in the church. There's only one recipe for gospel advance. We have to lose. That's what Paul's saying. Our lives have to be drained of all self-righteousness and boasting, all need to win. And here's the irony. Here's, here's the real irony. It's only when that happens, when there's no self-interest left, no need to be better than others, It's then that we find wisdom and are remade into the kind of people who can be entrusted with the work of judging and conflict resolution and ultimately to rule and judge the world at the end of the ages. So let me ask you, can you lose? If your answer is no, can I make a suggestion? Don't judge. You're not ready. And so my prayer for us as a people is, oh, that God would send his spirit to us, his people, to do this great work in us, right? And so let's pray to that end, can we? Will you pray with me? Father, I want to be the first to confess that I uh, hate, I hate conflict. I hate it. And I, so I avoid and I'm dishonest, and uh, I, I confess that to you, Father, because I realize I'm outsourcing the work that you've given me to do as a pastor in your church. And so I pray for us, I pray for this church, that we would not be a people who are afraid to do the hard work of conflict resolution, but that the gospel truly would be the power of God coursing through our veins and through our life together as a people so that we could learn from the Spirit, and be empowered by the Spirit to be people who, who do conflict resolution well, a people humble enough, um, self-forgetful enough to not be motivated and driven by self-interest, but by love for the other person, and, and that, that, would, that would free us uh, to be a people who are even now being fitted for the great work that will one day be ours, to sit on the throne beside the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the ages and to judge and rule over the world. That is what you are turning us into. And so would you come by the Spirit and begin that great work on us even now. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Just a reminder, if you are a member of Redeemer, everybody's welcome to stay. Uh, But uh, if you're a member of Redeemer, we do need you for about 10 minutes for a congregational meeting, informational meeting. Uh, or for informational purposes, let's put it that way. So if we could ask once we're done, uh, we're going to have about five or seven minutes to kind of get ready for that. So if you need to go over and get your kids and whatnot. Um, But if you're sitting around talking, which we love to do, which is great, can you just move that outside and talk outside?
so we can have that meeting. So thank you. Um, as you go from here to do conflict resolution, you might have a conflict you're facing right now that you got to go take care of. You may have one this afternoon, uh, tomorrow. Chances are it's not going to be very long because you're dealing with other human beings. Um, but as you go, this benediction is the promise God goes with you to empower you to do that in a way that we've just heard uh, so that the community can see the gospel working itself out in us. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.